Go back. A few other things we'll get to in our time remaining here today, but I want to turn our attention to a fascinating new book on the story of the ill-fated 1913 journey of the Carlock, the Canadian Arctic Expedition. I want to quote from the New York Times review of this book. This is a, an interesting way of describing it. It is a sickening, terrifying tale, a testament to the idiotic optimism with which white men first blundered across the Arctic and the sacrifices required to bring them home. Through it, twists a single question. How do you prepare for hell? For the man who planned the expedition, the answer would be, why prepare at all? That would be Wilhelmir Stephenson, who looms large in this story, as does Captain Robert Bartlett. Uh, the book in question is called Empire of Ice and Stone, the disastric, uh, Disastrous and Heroic Voyage of the Carlock. Uh, joining us uh, to talk more about the book is its author. Uh, Buddy Levy is the author of the bestseller No Barriers, also the book Labyrinth of Ice, and has mentioned the latest Empire of Ice and Stone. Buddy, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's my great pleasure. So, I mean, Labyrinth of Ice dealt with a, a different polar expedition and a different story, but I, I suppose then maybe there's some parallels. What, what got you interested in the story of the Carlock, first of all? Sure. Well, I actually traveled to Greenland in uh, 2003, and while I was there, I met a, a woman who handed me a book about uh, the life of Fritjof Nansen, the Norwegian explorer, in his first crossing of Greenland, and I became absolutely enthralled with um, tales of Arctic exploration. I should add that my father was a Nordic uh, ski racer and champion, and he competed in the Winter Olympics. And so I had some background. I grew up in a ski town called Sun Valley, Idaho. And I had some background in really cold weather, being out duck hunting in minus 25 below zero. And then my father had also told me stories of the Arctic explorers and how tough the the Scandinavians were. And so I was sort of predisposed to these kind of... Uh, uh, tales of um, of toughness and, and exploration. Well, yeah, and this encompasses both, obviously. And uh, as Mitch, I mean, it's a pretty wild story of what happened with this ship and what happened with these two men in particular and many others along the way who, who suffered through this this hell that resulted. So what, let's back up a bit. What was the purpose of this particular expedition way back uh, 109 years ago? Sure. Well, um, Willem Stephenson had returned from four years uh, of another expedition um, in the far north, and he conceived of trying, it was sort of three-pronged. I mean, it was to try to find this uh, myth mythical Crocker land, which um, the explorer Robert Peary claimed to have seen um, off the uh, coast of Ellesmere Island. Um, and that is sort of uh, ends up being kind of in question. Uh, and then the plan was to bring scientists up there and do anthropological and ethological study of the peoples above northern Alaska and Canada, sort of in the in the Coronation Gulf area, and so to seek out new land. And um, Stephenson had also made claims of having of of the peoples he was calling, <clears throat> excuse me, the blonde Eskimos, which were presumed to be um, descendants of Eric the Red, the Viking, and so. Um, that was the impetus for this uh, really elaborate uh, expedition, which involved, you know, th a three-ship armada, um, the Carlock being the flagship, and then uh, a number of scientists, and, um, and, and there's more to it that I'll get to, of course. But that's sort of the thumbnail yeah. sketch. So there was some ambition to this, but were, were they prepared for what they might and ultimately did encounter? 
Well, it's funny that you quote the New York Times uh, review. Um, the expedition was uh, saddled and uh, sidelined, I should say, by uh, rather hurried preparation. So when Stephenson came back in 1912, in the fall of 1912, uh, he immediately started promoting this new grand Canadian Arctic expedition of 1913. And uh, he went to the Canadian government and sought funding. He was already pretty well known and he had backing from the American Museum of Natural History, um, but he managed to, he was a very persuasive man. He was um, sort of a, an impresario and a chameleon, a chameleon. He could sort of change into whatever he wanted to be. And sometimes it was a, a kind of persuasive showman. Um, but he put together this, this expedition um, from the fall and uh, and winter of fall of 1913 and winter of 1914, with the idea of leaving uh, in, from Esquimalt, British Columbia, uh, in in June of 1914. So everything was relatively hurried for a trip of this magnitude, and there were some disastrous consequences uh, of the poor preparation. Part of it was bad luck. I mean, as I understand, it was it was an early or earlier than anticipated winter. So, if things could have maybe gone differently, but it was it was trouble from the get go. Well, that's absolutely true. So um, everything was okay as they uh, convened around um, Barrow, Alaska, and they had made it up through the Bering Strait and around the top of Alaska. And had, and though though I will say that Captain Bob Bartlett, uh, the Newfoundlander. Um, was dubious about the Carlux condition. It was an 18. It was a 129 foot uh, steam brigantine that was sir had served for a couple three decades in the sealing and, and whaling industry, but it was not really fitted out for um, battling the ice. Uh, but at any rate, yeah, they become encased. Uh, you know, in, as you mentioned, in in uh, mid August of 1913, there was a supremely harsh winter that um, set in on them just as they were leaving. And I, I, that is bad luck. But um, so then the, the flows were larger and more cumbersome and harder to navigate than they had anticipated. And the three ship armada um, actually became separated very soon after leaving together. And so as a result, you had the wrong men and the wrong equipment on the wrong ships because they were trying to rendezvous at Herschel Island, uh, a small island above the Canadian Yukon. Uh, and then they were going to reorganize everything. Uh, but it, it never really happened that way. Right. So they, they get trapped in ice, which is is a lot more ominous than it sounds, something that the Captain Bartlett <laughs> understood. And this is kind of where their, their stories diverge here but between these two uh, protagonists, if you will. Absolutely. So um, at, they, they become encased in ice. The Carlock uh, becomes nipped or uh, beset in ice. Or, and it, it ends up in about a mile and a half square flow of ice and the Carlick is no longer able to move under its own power, but it's drifting within this flow. And at that time, Stephenson is still on the ship with a number of the scientists he has hired. This is an international contingent of scientists from all over the world. But Stephenson never seemed to want to be on the ship. And, and as soon as it becomes starts drifting, uh, he begins conspiring of ways to try to make it to land. Um, and so around September 
20th, after drifting for just about a month, a little over a month, Stephenson says that he's going on a caribou hunt. Now, it doesn't seem to matter to Stephenson that he had, he had already said before that uh, there weren't very many caribou remaining in that region. But he, he brought a few of the scientists, uh, two of the best uh, Inupiat hunters uh, and the best sled dogs and disembarked his flagship, Carluck, and went ashore. And within one day, uh, a massive storm uh, lands upon them and leaves Stephenson stranded on a small island above northern Alaska and the Carluck uh, careening at breakneck speed, uh, sometimes as fast as 60 miles a day out into the middle of the Arctic Ocean. And along the way, and then they encounter, I guess, what we call the locals, right? The the Inuit who, who live and have lived in, in this, this region for many, many generations. Um, so they, they eventually become a part of this story, too. And, and it's interesting, the, um, I don't know, it's kindness, sympathy, generosity, bemusement. Um, but what, what did they make of all of this? Well, <clears throat> I'm really glad you brought that up because of, of all the uh, blunders that Stephenson makes, uh, one thing he did at right that was probably life-saving for most of the members of the shipwreck Carlick eventually was that before they left Barrow, Stephenson hired um, an Inuit family, uh, including a husband named Kuraluk, his wife Kiruk, and their two children, Helen, who was 11, and uh, Mubti, who was just three years old, and then also uh, an an Inuit hunter named Kadaktovic, who was young and rumored to be a really, really good hunter. And they were brought on board um, primarily for uh, Kuraluk and Kadaktovic to um, hunt, run the sled dogs, build igloos, uh, and, you know, find game, mainly seals and, and uh, bears. And also, you know, to, they had great experience on ice travel. Um, and then also... Uh, they were a- Auntie, who was the, that's the nickname of um, of Kuruk, Kuruk's spouse, mm-hmm. was excellent as, as a seamstress. And so Stephenson had, had brought on board uh, tons and tons of skins and fur clothing. And so Auntie and her girls were put to work, uh, hired to work, uh, to sew, you know, uh, mucklucks, mittens, uh, pants and uh, trousers and, and parkas. Um, and as it turns out, you know, they end up um, really being a, a major life-saving element, as I mentioned. Um, and we get to know them pretty well through the course of the narrative. Right. And we won't spoil too much of the narrative for folks who don't know the story. But, you know, the, the narrative that emerges, the overarching narrative here between these two men is that one was selfless, one was, um, you know, self-serving, right? And, and kind of as these polar opposites. Does that overlook some nuance or is that is that largely accurate? Well, you know, I think, um, yeah, so um, it's obviously a decision that Stephenson makes to leave the ship for which he receives, and uh, among many people who have studied this, uh, myself included, a lot of criticism because, um, you know, he doesn't do very much once he reaches land to try to go effect a rescue for the Carlock. And then what ends up happening is that the other man, the captain of the ship, Bob Bartlett, who, by the way, was a very venerated um, Newfoundland. Um, he was an ice master and a master nar- uh, a master navigator who had been called by um, Robert Perry, um, the world's greatest living navigator. And in fact, sidebar that a lot of people don't know 
is that um, Bartlett had been the captain of the SS Roosevelt, taking Perry up to um, above uh, Ellesmere Island and, and Greenland on Perry's 1909 North Pole bid. And Captain Bartlett got Perry uh, by leading this pioneer party. He was the one who navigated and set um, the, the Igloo Trail and navigated to within 150 miles of the pole. At which point Peary told him to return to the Roosevelt. And if Peary had just brought Bartlett along, and he, he might well not have had all the controversy he has ended up having about whether he made it to the North Pole, because um, Bartlett was, uh, you know, excellent with a sextant and a navigator, and he might well have been able to pinpoint uh, their position. Um, but you're right; it ends up being a story about the characters of these two men and how they they vastly differ uh, in the decisions they make as leaders. Now, did they ever meet up years later? I would imagine maybe, uh, you know, a punch in the jaw or something, you know, might have been uh, built up after all of these years. But did, did they ever cross paths again after all of that? Well, yeah, without spoiling everything, I will say that they they do have a rather contentious encounter. And there are a couple of times it's interesting because some of the main drama um, in this book happens uh the other thing that the New York Times said was that, um, you know, the Carlock uh, sinks uh, about one third of the way into the book. And what follows is hundreds of pages of terror. Yeah. <laughs> and now I will say that there's a lot more than terror in this book because you really get to know. Um, I, I relied on um, reams and reams of, um, of first account diaries from the people who are stranded on Wrangell Island. And so you really get to know their innermost thoughts and feelings and fears and aspirations and, and like the infighting that's going on between some of the members. It's kind of like, uh, you know, a, a, an episode of, of Survivor or something where you get to hear what they think of the others. Um, but uh, uh, there's this mythic. Uh, first of all, after the shipwrecks, they live on the ice um, on this place called Shipwreck Camp, which is just a floating flow, you know, uh, for a couple of months through the Arctic long night. And then they have to try to make their way 100 miles to Wrangell Island, which is this landmass above uh, Siberia and Russia. And, uh, and, and they have to try to make it over through these massive pressure ridges that rise up 100 feet high in the ruptured ice. Um, but there are many times where Bartlett is um, murmuring, you know, if I ever see Stephenson again, <laughs> I'll kill him. Right. <laughs> and he's not joking. Yeah, well, I would imagine. Um, as to, you know, the legacy of this, too, and I wanted to touch on because, you know, this it did kind of mark this this whole ill-fated uh, voyage, maybe the, the end of an era. Well, it's true because, you know, this book is set in 1913. You know, the Titanic has sunk the year before. Yeah. Uh, and it's because it's sort of the last <clears throat> The last of the dog sled uh, adventures. I mean, there are a few more, but it, it, things shift uh, essentially because of. Uh, and I will say also that you know this this episode in history occurs uh, while the uh, members are stranded on Wrangell Island. Um, you know, uh, World War One begins during the time, and, and some of the members who who uh, who who end up if they are rescued, they they discover that uh, World War One is you know the world is at war, um, but. You know, technology begins to change, and, and um, uh, the, a number of the firsts that that scientists, or pardon me, a number of the firsts that explorers have been looking for, like reaching the North Pole and uh, making it through the Northwest Passage, 
once these things uh, become achieved or at least claimed, um, then then the expeditions and exploration shifts to one of inquiry and science and and anthropology and ethnology, uh, and it and also you know then then there's the advent of the airship and the airplane, and so polar exploration takes on a different flavor from the the grand days of dog sled exploring. Fascinating stuff. It is a wild story for sure. It's called Empire of Ice and Stone, the disastrous and heroic voyage of the Carlock. Buddy Levy, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Hey, it's my pleasure. All the best. There you go. That's uh, Buddy Levy, award-winning author of Labyrinth of Ice, his latest Empire of Ice and Stone, disastrous and heroic indeed, the ill-fated 1913 Canadian Arctic expedition and the Carlock. And quite a story as to how the ship met its end and what came of those who were on board it. And these two men in particular really came to define this uh, important and fascinating story. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.